This podcast has been made possible with the support of Isuzu Ute Australia, a major national partner of the Royal Flying Doctor Service and also the sponsor of the Flying Doctor podcast series. More disturbing than painful, you know. It does really, really hurt a lot, but it's more uh, that feeling of, oh my God, that should not be in there. That's not where that lives. That's where my leg lives. And I looked down and I just thought, oh no, I've, co- I've cooked it. I've cooked it really badly. Hi, my name is Lana Mitchell from the Royal Flying Doctor Service. This is a podcast about life in the bush, mateship, courage, and the role that the Royal Flying Doctor Service plays in serving rural and remote communities. This is the Flying Doctor Podcast. My name is Kira Lee Dargan from the Royal Flying Doctor Service and I'm an Aboriginal woman of the Radjuri Nation. This podcast has been recorded on Ngunnawal land and is being broadcast across all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander nations. We at the Royal Flying Doctor Service want to acknowledge Elders past and present. The RFDS recognises that this is First Peoples land and always will be. Over a million people in Australia that enjoy bushwalking or trekking on a regular basis. That's a lot of people. It's no surprise then that sometimes people are trekking in areas that are a long way from cities, regional centres and townships. We're so lucky to live in a vast country with such incredible landscapes and terrains and they're wonderful to explore by foot. In terms of managing risk when bushwalking or trekking, scrapes, sunburn and insect bites are high on the list. And of course, heat stroke, dehydration and fractures from falls are something to always plan for. My guest in this episode is non-binary and goes by the pronoun they, them. Jessie knew they were in for an adventure when they set out to explore some rugged ranges in the Kimberley region, but never expected to find themselves 30,000 feet in the air with the Royal Flying Doctor Service after being impaled on a tree. Hi, Jesse. Thanks for joining me today. Hi, good afternoon. How are you? I'm really good. Before we get into this story, Jesse, I wanted to ask about your volunteering with the Australian Wildlife Conservatory. Could you tell me about the type of volunteer work that you've done in the past for AWC? Sure. So I've only volunteered once for um, AWC, and I think as you're about to find out, that was a bit ill-fated and uh, hasn't sort of scared me off the organisation, but maybe has uh, put me in mind to, to think about other ways that I can volunteer. When I was out there um, on the on their Mornington station, uh, the Australian Wildlife Conservancy station out there, we were doing uh, some volunteer land management and uh, just some basic scientific survey work. So we did a couple of days of clearing weeds out of one of the creeks, um, mainly butterfly pea. It's a very invasive uh, weed. And so we were ripping all that out and dabbing poison onto the, you know, the, the stalks of the, of the pea. So we did that for a few days and then 
then um, my partner went on to do some basic sort of flora and fauna surveys of the area because the um, Mornington Station is one of the largest destocked areas in the country, which means that they've taken all the cattle off it. So the the country has had a really um, unique opportunity to recover from the environmental degradation of colonisation and agriculture. So you're very passionate about environment and conservation and so forth, I presume. Have you travelled a lot around Australia? Yeah, I have. I don't work in the environment sector anymore. I'm in education now, but I've worked for, uh, for Greenpeace and the Wilderness Society and also on uh, I was working with an organization called Environs Kimberley which is the largest environmental NGO in WA um, and my partner works there now and uh, used to run a small uh, cadet group which was the Broome Senior High School Bush Rangers so shout out to the the Broome Senior High School Bushies um, and did a few sort of things like that. That's fabulous and what do you love about traveling to remote parts of the country? Australia is a I guess such a magnificently diverse country uh, there's so many different types of of country in or in, of environment in Australia there's lots of different climates that exist within Australia there's lots of different terrain there's um, you know hundreds of different uh, traditional owner groups who all have sort of unique and distinct ongoing relationships with the management of country so there's just sort of something different wherever you go and I find that uh, some of the more remote places are spectacular in the in the sense that they haven't been as as sort of frequented by colonial people or, or, or white people or the sort of modern day Australian public that aren't Aboriginal. And so you get a sort of much more um, unspoiled view of nature. So you had been trekking with a number of colleagues. Uh, if we go back to that time, you were out in a remote part of the Kimberley. You obviously live in Broome, so I presume that you were quite familiar with that country or was it the first time there? Uh, it was my first time there. So I've um, spent a bit of time uh, sort of across the Great Northern Highway in the Kimberley in Halls Creek and Fitzroy Crossing and the, the kind of ranges and camping spots around there. But it was my first time down the Gibb River Road, um, which is where Mornington is located. And we flew out there one afternoon. Uh, it was just the most spectacular flight. You know, you could see all the the rivers sort of snaking through the country they were pretty dry but you could see the riverbeds uh, if you know what I mean it was about September so it was the end of the getting towards the the latter part of the dry season it was yeah just incredible an incredible flight if you ever get the chance to fly over the Kimberley highly recommend it and how how long or how big was the trek that you were planning was it several days or like what sort of kilometers in terms of length it was actually only an afternoon. So it was, um, you know, we, we went out there for the day to have a swim in a waterhole and go sort of explore the King Leopold ranges. And it was a bit of a drive to get out there. It was our day off from volunteering. So we didn't have much of an opportunity to plan a multi-day trek. And I guess the other thing that can be tricky out in the, the Kimberley, especially at the end of the dry season, is finding water. So there's not a lot of places where you can do multi-day treks, unlike uh, the Northern Territory, where there's sort of a lot of big um, walks like the Japaluk walk and those sorts of things that people are quite familiar with. It's a bit more tricky in the Kimberley. What were the temperatures on this day that you were heading out for to have a little bit of recreation with your friends? 
I couldn't tell you exactly what it was. It was a beautiful day, sort of the perfect day for it. It was definitely very hot, blue skies, those sorts of things. I think because I'm sitting in cloudy Melbourne now, that sounds like the perfect day, but potentially it was a bit too hot at the time. I would say it would have been anywhere between sort of 35 and 40 degrees. So you're going on this walk and what was the purpose? You were heading specifically to this gorge. Did you have a specific destination? Yeah, that's right. So there was a a gorge that, that... AWC, some of the uh, interns and and employees there wanted to take us out to, to show us. Uh, So we piled into a couple of cars and drove off, I think, about two, maybe two hours from the Mornington Station camp, which they have uh, their sort of scientific and tourism operations run out of, and then uh, probably hiked for an hour from the place where we parked just on the edge of the road there into, into the King Leopold Ranges and then came to this gorge and this beautiful waterhole at the bottom and a waterfall coming down a, a sort of rock face through the middle of the, the gorge there. And then you sort of climb up and, and hike around. So did a bit of hiking into the gorge as well. So when you came up to the gorge, were you at the top or at the bottom of the gorge? At the bottom. So we came in at the bottom and there was sort of this that beautiful waterhole there and then you could, you could hike sort of into the gorge, up into the gorge and into the ranges. Oh, wow. Okay. So... So it sounds incredible. So tell me what happened next. So we had a bit of a swim and, and sat around and sort of yarned for a little while, just really enjoyed the cold water because it had been a bit of a hike. And, you know, you can imagine this sort of oasis with these beautiful, massive pandanus trees and these reeds and the in the water and bird life everywhere. And it was, you know, this kind of cool spot in the between these two big rock walls. And uh, after we had uh, sort of settled in and, and put our stuff down and gone for us when we decided to go exploring up into the gorge. So we uh, were sort of clambering over these big boulders and sort of through the middle of trees and there wasn't much of a walking path there. So it was really just kind of explore your way through, which is a, a heap of fun for anyone who really likes sort of canyoning or, or going sort of for, for walks through harder to reach parts of the bush. And we were, we were walking up uh, probably about half an hour into the gorge or, or half an hour, 40 minutes. And my friends, there was sort of two ways to, to go. There was sort of up onto a, onto a ledge or continue sort of down and around where the pathway went or further into the gorge. And half of us, well, half of the people went up and me and a few others went around in the, in the sort of down bit. And I was um, in front and, you know, keep in mind that because uh, we've been swimming, we hadn't actually put our clothes on. So, I was sort of in my jocks at the time, just walking along and sort of stepped on this this rock, which, you know, massive, massive rock, the kind of thing that you think has just been there for, you know, thousands of years and never once moved. And so, you think, oh, of course, that'll be fine to stand on. And as soon as I stood on it, it just kind of went dunk and uh, I slid down the the side of it and um, unfortunately I, I fell about five meters um, down the side of the gorge and into a, a dead tree which was uh, not the not the friendliest of places to land oh my god did anybody see you fall I presume the people that were with you with your sort of little separate group that had gone around did they all see you fall or did they just suddenly see a, sh- a rock shift and see you disappear uh, they saw me fall and 
and absolutely, I think I would have squealed on the way as well um, because it was it definitely gave me a bit of a fright. But you could definitely, you know, you could see down the side, and uh, it was pretty obvious what had happened. There had been people sort of right behind me, which was um, great and really good to sort of do those things with a group of people uh, so that you are safe in that way. And so I had fallen into this tree and a branch of the tree had gone into my leg just above the ankle and hit my shin bone and drove up about 20 centimetres before coming out again. So that was uh, very, very painful. What was the pain like? Could you describe that pain? Having a foreign object in your body is more disturbing than painful you know it does really really hurt a lot but it's more uh that feeling of oh my god that should not be in there that's not where that lives that's where my leg lives and i looked down and i just thought oh oh no i've i've cooked it i've cooked it really badly oh that sounds disgusting i can't imagine how that wouldn't look bad that's like like, (sighs) you know leg on a skewer yeah, I think it just looked a lot smaller when we uh, when we first sort of assessed the situation. Um, it wasn't until much later when I, I had the surgeon sort of show me some photos that she'd taken during the surgery that I kind of went, wow, that's a really long <laughs> piece of wood stuck in my leg there. When we had a look, though, it kind of looked like I had grazed my leg a bit higher up, but what it actually was was the end of the stick kind of coming out um, further up. So I was down there and everyone kind of came down I had this this stick in my leg or this branch in my leg which we then had to I was sort of connected to the tree so I was kind of stuck there couldn't really move and you know very lucky that nothing happened like a rock fall or anything that was the next question so you had fallen off this huge boulder was that boulder secure or was there the chance that that large boulder was going to actually fall down on top of you you know we never really thought about that I think (laughs) it was more about the stick at the time but we definitely you know people didn't take the same way down that I had come (laughs) and sort of throw themselves off the edge like lemmings or anything like that. But I think uh, it seemed to be fine. It kind of tipped and then just went back to where it was um, sitting. So, I don't know if it was on a a bit of a a bit of a precipice or something like that and just my weight had shifted it off kilter. So, it's it's basically just waiting to grab some next poor unsuspecting trekker. (laughs) Yeah, that's a good point. Maybe someone should put up a little sign there or something. I mean... Do not... Do not step on this rock. Okay, go on. Go on with the story. So, because I was sort of connected to this tree and and one of the guys that I was with did actually sort of, he gave it a bit of a tug on on my leg to see if it would come out, to see if I could get off there. And I just, um, I screamed instantly, you know, that just hurt so much. And and I I told him to stop because I had heard that that was uh, something that you shouldn't do is when you've got something lodged in you from my St. John first aid training was uh, to not remove it. And then the reason for that, just so for any listeners who are not sure why is that if you get a puncture wound with something and in this example it's a stick the reason is that it could have severed an artery and if you pull that thing out you can a do more damage to the actual body itself and b you can then allow that artery to essentially bleed freely which means a person can bleed out very quickly so yeah (laughs) so just to just to put that out there for anybody listening as to why it's not a good idea to pull something out so go on you've fallen five meters off a boulder which shifted 
you've fallen down into this gorge and you've been impaled on a tree and you've got a branch that's gone from your shin 20 centimetres up inside your leg and you're still stuck to the tree. So how did they end up getting that branch to come off the tree? So we had to twist it off. That was a really uncomfortable moment, you know. They sort of had to hold my leg and then twist the branch. And if you've done that before with a piece of wood or or a tree branch, you know, that it kind of goes fibrousy and sinewy and kind of, you know, peels back a little bit. And so they just had to keep twisting it and twisting it and twisting it until it came off and, uh, and I was free. So, yeah, that's one of the moments that really sticks with me. And I think, yeah, it's a really good thing that we didn't remove it. It absolutely would have done more damage. I think just from the pictures I saw later of the actual stick that was that was lodged inside there, it was all jagged and would have put splinters all through me and all that kind of stuff. And big, big, big splinters, you know, ten centimeter splinters, not your little sort of I've I've got my hand on the fence post kind of thing. This podcast has been made possible with the support of Izuzu Ute Australia. Have you seen any of our seven large RFDS flight simulators as they move around Australia? attending school, community or field days. Each is being towed by an Isuzu D-MAX ute, courtesy of Isuzu Ute Australia. Reliable vehicles are imperative in the harsh Australian outback and the Isuzu D-MAX and MUX vehicles are the perfect match for the long distance heavy towing demands of these simulators right across Australia. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online. So what do you do now? So you're there, you've been hiking for half an hour up into the gorge. How, what did they do? How do they get you back? You're so far from the cars. What, what, what did they do? So we tried a couple of things. First, you know, it, it was really lucky as well that I wasn't pleading at all, uh, really. it was, And that's probably another reason that it was good that we left the stick in there was because I wasn't bleeding. I didn't have sort of blood gushing out of me or anything. We uh, tried sort of going one person under each um, of my arms to kind of give me a bit of a boost to come back down, but discovered pretty quickly that because the terrain was so rocky, that really just was not going to work. So what I ended up doing was uh, just sort of scuttle butting down. So, so sort of sitting on my uh, bum and putting my hands sort of in front and behind me and holding my leg in the air so it was elevated and using the other leg to kind of crab walk down the gorge, which was tricky as well. There were sort of parts where I did have to kind of stand up and hoist myself through, you know, a couple of trees or over a, a rock or down onto the next sort of platform. So that took quite some time. So it probably took us a lot longer to get back down to the pool at the the, the bottom of the gorge uh, where everyone else was then um, then it took us to get up there in the first place. Jesse, was the stick that was protruding from your leg, was it coming out a long way or was it snapped off fairly close to the ankle? It was probably only coming out a couple of centimetres. So we had done a pretty good job of twisting it off there. So it wasn't dragging or anything like that. And and at this point, we sort of thought it was, we didn't think it was as bad as it was. So there was, a, you know, a couple of times when I actually tried to put weight on my foot to kind of help myself um, through and and sort of it, it just kind of gave way underneath me because it was, it was so painful. 
painful. But yeah, it was one of those things where we thought we thought it didn't look that bad, and I kind of felt really horrible for kind of you know ending everyone's day and potentially ending our our time out with AWC where we planned to be for another week or so. In the end, it it was the absolute right thing for me to get out of there and and go back and see medical attention in a regional town. So you didn't actually know how long the stick was inside your leg. How long did you think it was? I would have thought it was maybe five centimetres or something like that. I thought it was two different wounds. So I thought that it had gone in about five centimetres and then that I had sort of grazed or hurt my leg another sort of 15 centimetres up. But then what we discovered was that it had actually... uh, gone in and sort of continued under the skin where you couldn't see it um, and was poking out about 20 centimetres after the the entry wound. That's just gruesome. All right, so you scuttlebutt, 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 scuttlebutt. You must have some really good ab muscles there. (laughs) Scuttlebutt, scuttlebutt, all the way down. And you get back down to the gorge and it's like 35 degree heat and you've been injured. And what did you do at that point? I know they say it was probably a bad decision, but I went for a swim. I was just so hot and bothered and so uh, overwrought that I just got in that icy cool water and sort of floated for about 10 minutes um, and then got out and uh, ate an orange because I was <laughs> my body was just craving sugar and um, craving kind of energy and something sweet. And so it's kind of like, you know, when all the parents sort of run out at halftime at the, at the footy and give all the kids oranges to keep them going, I just needed a little bit of extra energy because I knew that it was still a bit of a way home. Yeah, so now you have to hike an hour back to the cars and that's still a couple of hours away from uh, where you need to go. Has had anybody at this point been able to make contact to call for help or was there any reception at all where you were? No. So we had UHT radios, but they were with the car. So we had to wait to get back to the car before we could let the AWC camp know that something had happened and that they should sort of prepare for our arrival. So we hiked back over the Spinifex and that, uh, yeah, took again a, a lot longer than it did on the on the way in. So that was uh, with one person under my shoulder, my lovely partner, Sam, was was sort of helping me across the, the plains there. And the Spin effects is really spiky, so that was sort of poking into us the whole way because we couldn't sort of dodge around it in the same way that we wanted to. But when we got back to the cars, that was such a relieving feeling, sort of sort of knowing that we we had wheels and we had uh, phones and we could then get in touch with the people that we needed to get in touch with uh, to sort to sort me out. Gosh, that's a long trip. I think we sometimes forget, like uh, if you live in a a metro area or a regional area, we sometimes forget that if you run into trouble, we always just assume, well, you know, help is not that far away. But when you're in such a remote part of Australia and something like that happens, just even the journey of getting back to the cars to be able to call for help for you was several hours. And if you had been by yourself, you would have been stuffed. Mm, Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. So you're very lucky to have your colleagues and your partner there with you. I presume you've called for help and now we've got to get you back to the station so that you can actually be gotten to hospital. Were you able to sit in the car normally or did they have to put you across the back seat or? So, I mean, as you can imagine, a group of like 20 something year olds, we'd we'd just smashed as many people as we could into the car. So there wasn't a lot of space. So I think I ended up sitting on the side with my leg 
across a number of people and then uh, them getting sort of a face full of my gory uh, mess of a, of a shin bone, those poor things. But driving back was um, pretty straightforward, thankfully. Uh, we really just sort of hopped in and got back to the camp and then they had uh, sort of a, a sick bay there, which was um, part of the, the sort of officer's administration piece of construction. And I sort of sat there until the RFDS came, uh, which was about four hours or something like that. I think we heard that they were doing a drop-off in Halls Creek or just picked someone up in Halls Creek and we're going to run to Broome quickly and then come back. And, you know, that was totally fine. I mean, it wasn't a life-threatening injury and I wasn't sort of in danger of, of sort of anything bad happening. And they had enough medical stock at the at the camp to kind of see me through. They gave me a shot of morphine out in the field, which uh, was an, an interesting thing. I don't think I'll probably ever have another shot of morphine out in, um, in a bush camp on the Gibb River Road, but really thankful that they had that kind of equipment and that set up there to see me through the, the wait time. Yeah, so that, that camp actually has a, an RFDS medical chest. And so I understand that mm. when you make a call in um, with an injury like this, the doctor can assess and determine what needs to be done and then provide recommendation or a prescription, um, which they can then administer. So it's sort of almost like having a little mini pharmacy there, which is great. Mm. And yes, you're right. Your injury, though gruesome, wasn't life-threatening. So you would have taken um, second priority to other more priority calls mm-hmm. for the RFDS because particularly in Western Australia, it's such a, a huge state uh, and the Royal Flying Doctor Service has to really take every single call that comes in and and triage it just like any kind of hospital. So yeah, at least you had had the morphine and you were able to, to sit and wait. Uh, can you remember when the plane actually landed there on the local strip? Yeah, it had gotten dark by then. We went out to the airstrip about half an hour before it was due to come. We kind of knew that it was there and so that it was on the way. I think they'd let us know that they had left Broome and were coming to Mornington. Everyone kind of wanted to look at the RFDS coming so because there was probably the same group of people from the two or three cars that we had earlier who all sort of piled in again and I had my leg up on everyone again. And, um, <laughs> at least you got lots of friends, Jesse. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, it was a good way to, I mean, I only knew these people for a couple of days, but God, I feel like got to know them pretty well in that time. There were some lovely people there. And yeah, but the reason we had to go down was because the uh, airstrip is uh, like a wide sort of cl- patch that's cleared of vegetation. The dingoes like to hang out there or they must hunt there or something like that. But there was uh, a bit of a task to do in clearing all the dingoes off of the airstrip so that the plane could land. So imagine a couple of land cruisers sort of just driving up and down the airstrip, sort of honking their horns and clearing them all out while we sort of waited on the on the side for the plane to land. We actually call that the Roo Run. It's a, a policy that a plane can't actually land until the Roo Run has been done. And that's whether it's by land cruiser or that, there's other methods, um, loud horns and whatever, but you can get emus, kangaroos, wombats, dingoes, you name it, um, or cattle, all manner of things can be on, on these strips because they're not fenced. So mm, anything mm. and everything can be there. So was there a lot of dingoes there when you rocked up? Um, I saw a couple sort of scuttling off. I'm not sure. It wasn't like hordes, you know, hundreds of dingoes everywhere sort of thing. I think it was probably only a couple. Right. But they... 
Yeah, they cleared out pretty quick. I think they're pretty shy animals, so they don't, they wouldn't have liked all that noise and carry on. Yeah. Okay. So how were you traveling by then? So you've got this stick, this massive big stick stuck inside your leg. Were you freaked out? Were you worried? What, what, where were you? Where was your head at by that time? I was exhausted and I was really hungry because they told me not to eat because uh, they might need to, well, they were going to operate when I got to Broome. They thought they would probably have to operate. And I think the only other thing I was thinking at that stage, because I didn't know that I was going to Broome, was please, 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 please don't take me to Derby. I don't want to go to Derby. I don't know anyone there and I've never been to the hospital there and I don't, I just don't want to go there. That was really, yeah, how I was feeling. I was just hungry, tired and didn't want to go to Derby. Okay. So, the plane arrived and what was your first impression? The people were just so nice. Like the pilot and the the staff, I think they were nurses and maybe a doctor. Just I remember how lovely they were and they were really sort of chatty and friendly and they realised that I wasn't going to be, you know, a hassle and I wasn't going to die on the way or anything like that. So, they weren't stressed. They were pretty good at distracting me from sort of what was going on. I think they put me in a in a stretcher outside of the plane and then that kind of got lifted into the plane. It sort of opened up on the side. It had a big sort of opening to get there, which was very cool. Very different way to travel um, and feels like quite an exclusive club. They were talking about how they'd, you know, been to the races in Broome the day before and how they wanted to go to rodeo in a couple of weeks' time, all that kind of stuff. Um, we're just sort of very friendly and, and sort of keeping my mind off things. Shortly after we took off, I did have a, I think it's called a vasovago or or something like that, where the, I think your blood pressure drops must be because of the altitude or, or just something like that. And I, I sort of passed out and they had to put a, a bit of oxygen on me to kind of uh, get me going again. That was a bit scary because I just didn't know what was happening and didn't, uh, wasn't expecting it and had thought that I was totally fine. And then all of a sudden had this sort of and I just thought I was, you know, these are my new friends, the RFDS people, and we're talking about what's on in town next week and we're talking about what's been happening and who wants to go to the rodeo and what we're going to wear to the races. Um, and then all of a sudden I had this moment of, oh, actually, I'm in a medical emergency right now and, the, you know, the, I'm sort of starting to lose consciousness and I don't really know what's happening and I don't actually know any of these people, but they seem very professional, which is really good. But, yeah, that was a, a bit of a moment. I think I had, there were a few moments throughout the ordeal where I went, oh, God. I think, I think I'll be okay. Did they assess you when they first received you? This was the first medical people looking at your leg. Did they say anything about your leg or give you any indication about the severity of it? I remember them saying, yep, they'll probably need to operate, but they weren't. I'm, and I remember that they weren't really worried about it and were sort of cracking a couple of jokes. Oh, you've done yourself a mischief and all that kind of stuff. But uh, to be honest, I was so exhausted. I can't really remember. And we're one morphine shop deep by this stage as well. So I think my, my memory is not the greatest of that, that little bit. Did your partner come with you on the plane? I directed him to stay day at the station. He would have come with me. He tells me quite often that he would have if I'd asked, but uh, he was studying ecology at the time and it was a sort of fantastic experience for him to be out there, you know, doing scientific uh, volunteering with the Wildlife Conservancy. And so, I thought best for him to stay and enjoy that experience. And I'll probably just be knocking around the hospital and stuff in Broome. And I've got lots of friends there. I lived in the Kimberley for a long time. So, I wasn't worried about sort of being alone and scared or anything like that. So he he stayed at the camp and I went. 
That's very generous of you not to not to drag him off with you. So I keep telling him. So I keep telling him. <laughs> so the plane lands and, and you were taken to Broome, right? Yeah, that's right. So they said when we got on, we're going to Broome. And I went, yes. Okay, good. And so what happened once you got to the hospital? What did what did they tell you? Did they give you an x-ray or what did they do? They didn't do an x-ray. They might have done an ultrasound. This is going back a couple of years now, so I'm not quite sure, but they they told me that I wasn't going to be operated on until the morning. So, I think we must have got in at about 11 o'clock at night or 10, 11 o'clock at night. They told me that I wasn't going to be operated on until the morning. And I remember that really upsetting me because I realized that I could have eaten hours ago uh, and I was just really, really hungry and wanted something to eat. So, they gave me one of the worst sandwiches I've ever had, the most dissatisfying. <laughs> and I sort of wolfed, wolfed that down. And then they gave me some painkillers and sent me to bed. Okay. So, you then went in for surgery the next morning. When you came out of the surgery, what did they tell you? They said that it had been a, a large stick, essentially, and explained to me that it had gone all the way up and that it was about 20 centimetres was the um, incision that they had to make. So, they had to basically cut down my leg and then open it up and had to sort of pull the, the stick out directly. So, they couldn't pull it sideways or out either of the holes. They had to cut right down and then lift it out and uh, give it a good clean and all that kind of stuff. The surgeon, who was really lovely, uh, agreed to take some photos for me. So, I've got some wonderfully uh, gory photos of my legs sort of concertinaed open and of the stick that was taken out. So, I think I had uh, about 20 stitches in there or so and, and it was it was looking pretty gnarly at this stage. They told me that uh, I would probably be fine but I just needed, you know, a bit of aftercare and rehab and all those kinds of things uh, and that I could go home from the hospital in uh, a couple of days. So, that was really good because, you know, hospital's not a fun place to be. But the I did have to go back into the hospital every day after I left to have the wound cleaned and because it was sort of stitched up the whole way. They had to they had a rope with silver in it. Silver is I think a, a natural antibacterial and they would use tweezers to pack the silver rope all the way up the twenty centimeters um, and from the bottom. So they'd push this rope right up my leg and then leave it there for the day and then the next morning I'd have to go in and they'd drag it all out again um, and so I've got some equally gory videos of, of that sort of coming out of my leg but the gory videos and photos actually turned out really turned out really well and turned out to be really helpful because I then put a um, you know a little fundraiser on Facebook to say thanks to the RFDS and stuff like that and ended up raising about 500 bucks for um, the organization so gory photos come in handy folks it's Fantastic on the fundraising, really gory on the on the details. Were you ever worried that you would lose some kind of functionality or strength or function of that leg? Yeah, I really was. I mean, I was on um, crutches for a couple of months afterwards and I am a big runner. That's always been my sort of chosen form of exercise. And, you know, I think if anyone's read Haruki Murakami's What I Think About When I Think About Running, it, it's a quite a meditative thing for me to do. So, quite 
important to my physical but also mental health. And yeah, it was a long time before I got back on the road again. So there was sort of two things that really helped. I, I did quite a lot of yoga and um, a friend of mine ran a uh, hip hop yoga studio in Melbourne, which was uh, just yoga, but with hip, hip hop music. And so went there for uh, a few sessions and kind of took it easy and just enjoyed the music and did that for a couple of months. And that helped to get a lot of flexibility back um, in my feet, particularly because the scar tissue had sort of pulled on my tendons towards my feet and had sort of pushed my foot knuckles out of alignment, if that makes sense. So there was sort of ramifications downstream in my body for that injury. Everything kind of got a lot tighter. And so I had to sort of loosen all that up. But it wasn't until I'd say, yeah, six months after the accident that I went for my first run and I was allowed to go 500 meters, I think, which was sort of just around the block. So that was, you know, the start of a long road and it probably took me a year, but luckily it was COVID and it was locked down and I did all my exercises because I had nothing else to do. And by the end of the year, I ran uh, from Simpson to Port Campbell, which is 36 kilometers. And that was wow. my sort of best one that year. So full recovery, a little bit of pain in my foot sometimes, particularly if I'm wearing high heels, but the doctors did a really great job and all the other sort of health professionals that I dealt with along the way, the podiatrists and the osteos and the, the physios and all that kind of stuff were excellent and really helped me to get back to full form. That's fantastic. Did this injury cause you to change your perspective on life in any way? It definitely uh, has uh, made me a bit more cautious. I think I... Uh, have always been someone who, you know, will, will just go scrambling down the side of a cliff and, you know, go into the sort of weirdest, most hard places and jump off something big and, you know, do all those kinds of things whenever I get the opportunity. I still do all those things, but I think I just do it with a, a little bit more caution. I kind of test where I'm about to walk quite a bit. And then definitely whenever we're sort of down at the rock pools at the at the beach in Broome, or if we're, I think there was a, a place down in the, um, the Edgar Ranges where we were recently where we were doing some canyoning and kind of going into these and exploring all these canyons and and my partner says to me before every one of those times let's just make sure we don't have a <laughs> a repeat of, um, of of September 2019 or Mornington Station or anything like that. Good advice. Do you have any advice for people that are trekking or bushwalking in remote areas? Yeah always go with a friend. Never, I would say don't go alone. That would be my advice. It's great to take a first aid kit with you where you can, but if you're, you know, you're just going for a little walk or something like that, um, at least make sure you've got people around you that can help you. Thank you so much for walking us through your adventure. My gosh, I am really glad that you've recovered and that your leg is good and that you are running marathons. Um, despite that injury. Uh, you're a very strong and courageous person and I really appreciate you talking to us today. Thank you and I really appreciate all of the work that the RFDS uh, does and did on that day for me. Not just the RFDS but the, you know, the public hospital system and St John of God, the ambulance service and all these amazing sort of charities and not-for-profit organisations that create sort of a, a patchwork of healthcare for people to access when they're in remote and rural Australia. Thanks for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please share it with family and friends. And don't forget to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. 
You can also join our new Facebook group called the Flying Doctor Podcast Community, where you can chat to other listeners. And please do try out our new podcast hotline. You can call and leave an audio message with questions and feedback on the podcast. The number for the hotline is 02-8405-7928. We look forward to hearing from you. The Flying Doctor podcast was presented by me, Lana Mitchell, and senior producer is Mandy Cullen. Thanks again for listening. Hey, thank you for listening to this episode. And thanks again to our major sponsor and major national partner, Isuzu Ute Australia. Isuzu Ute is committed to supporting the communities in which the RFDS operates. To learn more, search Isuzu Ute online.